Well, this morning's address from God's Word is going to be um, just slightly different than what you're accustomed to because the passages that we're going to be looking at briefly are uh, passages that will not fully make sense or have the kind of impact that they should on our lives unless we understand how they are framed. And sometimes the historic background is so necessary to really unearth the gravity of what we're actually looking at. And I want you to just relax for a little bit. Eventually we will find ourselves in Philippians 1, but not quite yet. And the reason for that is because of the events that led up to the verses that we're going to be looking at. Now, as you know, the Apostle Paul, who was once Saul, was called by God on the road uh, to Damascus, turned around from a, a feverish attack on the Christian church, seeking to stamp it out. He was a Pharisee, and he was a ruler among the religious people in Jerusalem, and he was in many ways head and shoulders over his colleagues, his contemporaries. Well, Paul's life was radically changed when the power of Christ and his revelation came to him and he met him, his heart was changed forever. And right off the bat, Paul asked two questions. Who are you, Lord, and what would you have me do? Those were the two questions. And those aren't too bad. I think every follower of Christ should ask that question. Lord, who are you really? And what would you have me to do? And when we work through the early history of the church in the book of Acts, beginning in chapter 20, we have that moving scene where Paul is in Ephesus and he is saying farewell to those believers that he had spent two years with. And it was a very touching scene where he spoke to them and spoke to their elders, and it ends up that he has been warned by them, do not go to Jerusalem. Word about you has spread far and wide, and the rulers in Jerusalem are no doubt going to take your life. In fact, one who was a bit of a prophet or prophetess actually did this illustration for Paul, took off his belt and wrapped it around Paul and cinched it up and tied him and said, thus will happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. They're going to bind you and throw you in jail. And Paul says, why are you breaking my heart? God has already revealed to me that everywhere I go, chains and bonds and persecution await me. This gospel message must go forth, no matter what the opposition. And uh, Paul was completely sold out to do what Christ had told him to do, which was to spread the, the message of this salvation through faith in Christ. So Paul had this tearful, tearful farewell with them on the beach of the Mediterranean, and there he left them. And he went off into his travels, and he ended up eventually in Jerusalem, and sure enough, he, uh, a riot was stirred, uh, false accusations were brought against him, and he found himself incarcerated there. And during that time, the Romans had stepped in. I'm, I'm really abbreviating this. The Romans stepped in because there was a riot, and they weren't going to put up with the societal upheaval going on. 
And so what ends up happening is they bring all these charges against Paul back and forth, and finally the Roman official says, we've got to move him out of here. They're going to kill him, and then it's going to be on our head. And you see, the thing about it was is that Paul was able, by money, to pay for Roman citizenship. So even though he was a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, you could purchase your way into Roman citizen and he, citizenship, and he had papers. Well, that protected Roman citizens from uh, being mistreated. There were laws about how you treated Roman citizens. And so Paul ends up being taken to rescue him from the Jews. He ends up in Caesarea, which is a uh, city right on the Mediterranean. In fact, uh, he went there and under Roman incarceration and was imprisoned. And he spent two years there in Caesarea. Two whole years in which you read in the latter chapters of Acts, chapter 21 through chapter 27, and you can read about the trials of Paul and all the times that he stood before them and gave his testimony and, and bore witness to the resurrection of Christ. And he was before Felix and, uh, and Festus and uh, Bernice and these dignitaries that would come. And so Paul was there incarcerated for two years. Kathy and I, when we went on our tour there of Israel, that was one of my favorite places because they had done excavating there and archaeological digs, and they had found this place where judgment was meted out. And there were carved into the rocks sort of a small amphitheater. And the guide told us that this may very well have been the exact spot where Paul stood and gave his defense of the gospel three different times over a period of, three, of two years. Well, what ends up happening is... They decide that they may, they may take him back and turn him back over to Jerusalem. And Paul knows he's going to die in Jerusalem if he goes back there. Plus, here's the thing about Paul. He always had it in his heart, this longing to go to the nerve center of the Roman Empire. You see, the cultural center of Rome was Athens, that's where all of the great philosophers were and the thinkers and so much of the culture of the Roman Empire was Grecian. But the heartbeat and the nerve center of the Roman Empire, its seat of military and political power, was in Rome. And Paul wanted to go to Rome. He knew that if he could make it to Rome and walk those streets and gather groups of people and proclaim the gospel and teach them about Christ, that he, in his mind, thousands would come to Christ. And there would be a ripple effect from the nerve center of the Roman Empire right at the heart of Rome. And Paul envisioned these, these ripples going out and the gospel spreading. And he had this, no doubt, in his mind. And so as he was praying, the Lord met with him in the night and said to him, Paul, do not be afraid, for as you have bore witness to me and my gospel in Jerusalem, you must also bear witness in Rome. And so this is what happens. Paul, at the final trial there in Caesarea, when they were thinking about sending him back to Jerusalem, where they were going to 
assassinate him. In fact, some men had earlier had even made a pact with one another that they were going to fast and eat nothing until they had the blood of Paul on their hands. So Paul says, listen, I'm a Roman citizen. And under Roman law, I can appeal to Caesar. And what was he doing? Well, it's kind of like us. We have a we have a courthouse here in Stevens County, and then we have a courthouse in Olympia, and if that doesn't fly, we can go to the Supreme Court of Washington, and if that doesn't get us what we want, we can keep appealing until finally we appeal to what? That's just to make sure you're all with me. The Supreme Court. Well, that's what Paul was doing. I appeal to the Supreme Court. I want to plead my case before Caesar. And so everything kind of changed for Paul. He thought, I'm going to end up in Rome from what the Lord had told me, and I'm going to get to walk the streets and gather crowds and proclaim the gospel and reveal the living Christ to them, the resurrection of Christ from the dead and his perfect work on the cross. I'm going to be able to do this. And, but all that changed. So what ends up happening with Paul is he gets put aboard a ship. After two years of incarceration, and they sail off for Rome. And if you've read those chapters toward the end of Acts, you know that there was a hurricane that blew in uh, off the Cape, and the ship was wrecked, and you remember all of that. And yet, as you follow Paul, everywhere he goes, under every circumstance, the one thing that Luke keeps bringing out, who wrote Acts, is that Paul always had foremost in his mind the gospel. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. And in every circumstance, it's the gospel, no matter what. And so, people aboard that ship, other criminals that were there chained with him, they heard the gospel. Others that were the crewmen, they heard the gospel. When the ship was finally wrecked, by the time it was breaking apart and they were despairing of life, the person who rose to leadership aboard that ship was guess who? The only one with faith and confidence, Paul. And how could he be so confident? Because the Lord told me I'm going to Rome, and no hurricane is going to keep me from going to Rome. And we're going to survive this. And so they all did. And then on that little island where they were at, there was a situation where Paul was allowed to go speak to the chief who was head of the tribe of that island, and he got to bear witness to Christ to those people. And he prayed over uh, someone there that was sick, and they were healed, and all these wonderful things are happening, all because Paul had a passion for the gospel in every circumstance. Well, finally, Paul makes it to Rome. And you'd think, okay, well, this is, you know, at least he made it there, right? But it wasn't at all like he thought. To him, he thought the Roman, the city of Rome, one million people, largest city of the then known world at that time, a million people, Paul thought. He, the poor guy was salivating over the opportunity to share the gospel. But what ends up happening is that because he's a Roman citizen and because he arrived with no charges, the officials back in Caesarea, they couldn't articulate what our charges are. He's going to have to plead his case before Nero. And so Paul ends up having his first hearing 
And in that hearing, he's put on hold, like oftentimes in the courts in our country, you're put on hold for a while. Paul's put on hold, and what they allow him to do is they allow him to have rented quarters. I'm guessing not far from the Praetorian castle or, yes, the, where, where the Praetorian was, which was the royal place of both law as well as military. Now here's what happened. Think of this. God's ways and our ways are so different. Paul had originally seen himself walking the streets of Rome, a million people to reach, hoping that it might affect Rome at its very heart. So what does God do? In his mysterious providence, just like in your life and mine, things don't always go the way we think they should. But God has a plan. And so Paul ends up allowed to have rented quarters, but here's the catch. He must be guarded. And so there is a decree that the Apostle Paul, until his hearing, will be guarded by Roman soldiers who are called the Praetorian Guard. These Roman soldiers were the best of the best. They were the elite soldiers of the Roman Empire. There was 9,000 of them. And they were like a combination of Green Beret, Navy SEALs, and Secret Service, all rolled into one. So when you think about Paul being chained, which he literally was chained to a soldier for six hours, and the rotation would change, and another soldier would come, and he had soldier after soldier after soldier of the Praetorian Guard, the emperor's elite bodyguard, these soldiers. They were the best of the best. These were not fat, sweaty soldiers. These were sophisticated, educated, sharp soldiers, and they were skilled, not with an AK-47, Oh, no. These were rough dudes. They could wield a sword and a dagger and a shield. They were tough. They were the best. In fact, historians tell us they were only allowed to serve for 12 years because their work was so intense. And not only that, when they did retire, they retired with all the benefits. They had it made for the rest of their lives. That's how much Nero thought of them. So here's Paul, handcuffed to a praetorian soldier every day, 24 hours a day, for two years. Now, do you think that's the way he thought he would reach Rome? Actually, that was God's plan. God said, no, you're not going to start out on the fringes and work your way into Caesar's household. I'm going to put you right at the center of Caesar's household so the gospel will spread from the core out. And we see this in this great passage. And so having given you that framework, 
Now let's look at how Paul, 10 years have gone by since he was with the Philippians. He is now writing to them. And last week we looked at his prayer for them. Now he's going to update them on how he's doing. He's 600 miles away from them, but he's sending this letter so that they, they could know how things are going. And by the way, during this same time, he not only wrote Philippians, but he wrote Colossians, and he wrote Ephesians, and he wrote Philemon, those books. Now, let's look at the passage. In Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12, here's what Paul writes. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. Like I said, the Praetorian Guard consisted of 9,000 elite soldiers, the most trusted men in the palace of Caesar. Verse 14, And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then, verse 18, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this <laughs> I rejoice, he says. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. Paul's gospel confidence was contagious. You know, in our Christian lives, every one of us need two things. We need somebody in our life that ignites us. But we also need to be that to someone else. We need somebody in our life that is contagious. Their love for Christ and his word and the gospel and longing to see souls brought to Christ. We need somebody like that that inspires us. But we also need to be in that place for someone else that we could ignite them. And I fear sometimes that it, we don't nearly need, need encouragement. 
We don't need simply a little kick in the pants, as my dad used to say. We need more than that. I feel like some of us need to have those paddles that they use when someone has had a massive coronary and their heart has stopped and they put them together with a gel and they apply them and they blast them with volts to awaken a heart that has stopped beating. My brothers and sisters, the evangelical church across our country needs those paddles applied to its heart. It isn't just about, of course, it's about encouraging each other. Of course, we need to build up each other and support each other and be there when we're hurting or going through a tough thing. Of course, that's what love does. But I ask you, are we a New Testament church if we have turned a blind eye to the lost that live in the Kettle and Colville Valleys? Maybe the paddles need to be applied to our hearts so that we care again about the soul of the neighbor who lives across the street and the soul of the fellow workman that works on the machine next to me. And on and on we could go. There are people who are living hopeless lives, lost lives. They're doing the best with what they've got, but they're destined to end this life with nothing except judgment to come. And we carry the message. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. Christ and making him known. Paul was intoxicated with the gospel and the longing to see souls reached. In those opening three verses, verses 12 through 14, I see there his gospel confidence so contagious that it it inspired and affected others even though he was in confinement. And I've tried to picture that in my mind. How would you like to be the Roman soldier who gets chained to Paul for six hours? Can you imagine the conversation? And we don't know the rotation, but there may have been 30 or 40 of them rotating in because it wasn't the most enviable job for these elite soldiers. So I doubt that they just only had, you know, six of them rotating or something. There was no doubt more. But they're chained to to Paul. And over time, maybe their rotation comes back again and they get to come and see him again. And Paul says, hey, by the way, how, how's, your, how's your wife, Claudia, doing? Last time we were together, I told you I'd be praying for her. I know she'd been sick. How, how's she doing? And the soldier says, oh, Paul, she's, she bounced back. We, we weren't sure what, how it was going to go, but she's doing much better and, and uh, taking care of the kids again. And, and oh, yeah, how are those kids? And you, you can see Paul interacting and caring. And then moving the conversation to, by the way, have you, have you thought more about what I told you? About Christ, about the living, risen Christ and his call upon your life. 
And uh, there's so many ways that we could imagine. Two years. And yet we're told here, he says, the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout two or three, four or five, the whole praetorian guard. God answered his prayer. He put his finger right at the nerve center of the Roman Empire, at the elite soldiers that guard the emperor and his household. And he placed Paul right in the middle of it so that the gospel would go forth. Isn't that something? And if you're an average believer like us, and you hear, wait a minute, these elite Roman soldiers that you stand back when they walk by, these guys are coming to Christ. And they're sitting next to Paul, and they're being led to Christ. And then he's discipling them as their rotation comes back around. And he does the most outlandish things. Talk about risky Think about what he writes. If you're a Roman soldier and you lean over and say, hey, what are you writing there, Paul? Well, I'm, I, I'm talking to these believers in Philippi, fellow believers of yours. And I told them, have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be held on to, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. The soldier's saying, really, tell me more. And he says, well, I know that you think Nero is it. I know you do. But I'm telling you that Jesus Christ submitted himself to God the Father's will. He died, even at the death of a cross. And guess what God Almighty has done? He has therefore exalted him and given him the name that's above every name, including Nero's, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, kurios, to the glory of God the Father. Wow, that soldier's thinking. And I thought Nero was a god. He's nothing compared to this one. And you could go on and on. Jump over to Ephesians. Maybe it's a year, a year and a half into his incarceration and his being chained to these guards. What does he do at the end of Ephesians? Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the evil one. And then he lists the pieces of the armor, of the weaponry, the helmet, the breastplate, the shield, the sword, the, the special boots that these elite soldiers wore. What's Paul doing and where did he get such a vivid image so that he could share with us and Christians all down through the centuries have benefited from the armor of the believer. 
Does God know how to accomplish his purposes even when the circumstances don't seem clear to us? As long as we have a contagious confidence in the gospel and are not just whining and murmuring and uh, belly aching. I'm sure that's in the Greek somewhere, belly aching. Circumstances that open doors to the gospel that we may never have seen if we weren't gospel focused. In verses 15 through 17, we see his gospel confidence was contagious even in spite of criticism. And this is really quite fascinating, verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. You know what this section's about? Paul never says that they're not preaching Christ. These are not heretics. If they were heretics preaching false doctrine, Paul would not have said, in this I rejoice and will rejoice. No, these were believers. But I think they had a, they had a, a case of, the, of Paul enviitis because they heard that he was rocking the praetorian guard with the gospel and they were coming to Christ. Now, these were brothers who just kind of got envious. You know, I'll tell you this. I know this is going on YouTube, but I don't care. Years ago, when we would first start going to pastor's conferences, after two or three of them, I'd say, Kathy, these are killing me. She said, well, well, what are you talking about? I said, I just, I get to, I sit around a table and there's a half a dozen guys and, you know, I want to talk about Christ. I want to talk about what's he doing in your life. Who are you reaching for him? Who are you praying for that will come to Christ? I I, want to talk about the things that matter the most. And you know what we end up talking about, Kath? Who has the larger attendance in their church? Who has the bigger budget? Who gets a new leased car every three years? And it was killing me, just killing me. Because some of the guys were just, and I'm not talking about village missions, by the way. Big pastor's conferences that I went to where guys had multiple staffs. Oh, I just preach. That's all I do. I've got a staff guy for visitation and a staff guy for evangelism and a staff guy for youth, and I've got... I've got seven different pastors under me. I've never known anything like that. Nor do I care to. I like what we do. And I like our church family. Well, these guys were just jealous. But some preached out of goodwill. And Paul says, okay, what will my response to this criticism be? I'm going to celebrate. I celebrate, why? Because I'm being criticized? No. That just comes with the territory. How many of you have had me for lunch on Sunday afternoon after a message that didn't quite set well with you? No, you don't have to show your hands. I know it's true, so it's okay. No, Paul celebrated. Why? Because Jesus Christ was being preached. The gospel was going forth. Even if their motives weren't right, 
the message. There's nothing wrong with the message. And so he says there in verse 18 through 20, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. He is the light of the world. And if he's being proclaimed in this darkness, I rejoice. I rejoice that his great name is being proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, I will rejoice. And by the way, Paul goes on to talk about his hope that he'll be delivered, he'll be released. And biblical scholars tell us he was. He survived this and shook the Roman Empire by sending the gospel right into the heart of the Praetorian Guard. But this, this was only the first of his Roman imprisonments. He's imprisoned again. And that was the one where he wrote to, to Timothy in chapter 4 and said, Timothy, the time of my departure's come. The sentence has been handed down. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I have kept the faith. And now there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord will grant me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. And Paul ended his great contagious life with many of them leaving him, deserting him. And yet he, he lived a life that was contagious. And he died a death that was contagious because he knew that the Lord would graduate him home. How can we not love this man? and say, Lord, I know I could never measure to, to the Apostle Paul, but can I just be a little more like him? If nothing else, give me greater boldness, more confidence, more courage in speaking freely of the Savior I say I love with those who need to know him. Proclamation is what's missing in so many churches. The pastors get up and wipe the rest of the jurgens off their hands and open their notes that have perf they have squirted perfume on them. And they say things like, I should like to share a few thoughts with you this morning. Or I would like to suggest. Or for your consideration. Or I could be wrong about this, but, I, but just ponder it. That was not Paul. Paul said, no, on things that I don't understand, I'll leave them alone. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and exalted to the right hand of God, I have one thing to do. Proclaim it. It's a message to be proclaimed, not discussed. There's no discussion. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he summons you, and he summons me to believe in him and trust him and turn from our sins and our unbelief to fully embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of our lives. Amen to that? That's what we're to proclaim. That's not up for debate. 
We don't equivocate when we talk about the gospel. We make it known. But the enemy and our culture has made us kind of mealy-mouthed. Is that figure of speech ever still used anymore, mealy-mouthed? We're afraid. How dare you be so confident about that? Can I tell you something, a little secret? When it comes to your testimony and your witness, do you know what makes your witness for Jesus Christ so powerful? Because you are part of the evidence. You can say with eyes wide open, He has changed me. You see, you're part of the very evidence that the gospel is true and will change a person from the soul out. Well, Paul's example is compelling. He was faithful in his obligation to the gospel. Woe to me if I preach not the gospel, he said. He was not only faithful in his obligation to the gospel, he was flexible to the opportunities of the gospel. Even if it meant incarceration. And we end up blessed with the books of Colossians and Philippians and Ephesians and Philemon. And he rocks the Roman Empire from the inside out. Wow. Flexible. Are you flexible? Is it okay for the Lord to change and, and somewhat alter your plans to put you in a position or in an environment where somebody needs to hear about Christ? Is that okay? We sing and celebrate, Lord, I will follow you, follow you all the days of my life. Does that include follow you into circumstances where you alter them just right so that somebody's there that needs to hear about you? And he was not only faithful and flexible, but he was fearless in the face of opposition to the gospel. I do not count my life as dear unto me, Paul said, if I can only complete the commission that he's given me to bear witness to Christ. Isn't that a great section of Scripture? But if we don't frame it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And if you're like me, when you come and do a passage like that, you kind of just breeze past it and get on to some better stuff and not realizing that there's so much involved. I can't get over that that Paul is chained to an elite soldier of the emperor himself while he writes, and God the Father has given him the name that is above every name. Paul wasn't stupid. He knew that those very words would bring capital punishment. He knew that. And when he wrote to the Romans in chapter 10 of, of the book of Romans, and you'll remember these verses. Sometimes we teach them to our youngsters. 
that if thou wilt confess with your mouth Jesus as kurios, as Lord, which means confess that he is supreme in his lordship over heaven and earth. If you'll confess that and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That confession, the Romans, when they received that letter and read that, they knew that confession under the right circumstances is a death sentence. So it adds weight, doesn't it? And for us right now, the worse we get is snubbed or sort of marginalized or snickered at or maybe disallowed into certain circles. Is that a high price to pay of love for the Savior? So, I'm not scolding. I've been convicted by Paul's example. And I want to be bolder. And I do want to say this too. Kathy and I had this discussion the other night. And I asked Kathy, what do you think about this idea? We've been here over 30 years now, 31 years. And we don't know how much time we have left. But you know what we would like to do? Some of you say, well, Pastor, I hear all that about witnessing to others, talking to them about Christ. I, I, it's hard for me. Yeah, I understand. So Kathy and I talked about that. We said, you know what we should do? One of these days, we should come on a Sunday morning and have a clipboard. I'll have my clipboard, and you have your clipboard. And we'll just make a, a simple offer. And Kathy would say, any of you ladies that would like to learn to witness, to speak to others about Christ, or would just like the enjoyment of going along with me. We'll go together. When opportunities arise where somebody needs help and support and needs to hear the gospel, and I'll take you with me, Kathy said. We'll go together. We'll, we'll have a cup of coffee on the way, and we'll pray and say, Lord, we don't know all that this woman is troubled with, but we'd like to help her. And if it means leading her to you, we'd be so honored if we could lead her straight to the cross where she could receive Christ. Kathy wants to make that offer to any ladies that would like to learn and go along with her. Not that we've arrived. We have lots to learn, but we've picked up a few things along the way. And the same with you men. How many of you would be willing to be on a list so I can think about the person that needs a visit, and then I can look at the list and think, you know, I think this man would be good for this visit. He has a lot in common with this man. So we'll go, and you and I will go together, and we'll go make a visit, and we'll see if we can't win some souls to Christ. Souls to Christ. What do you think? Well, we'll let you know. We'll, we'll pray up some more about that and uh, let you know. But it's time that the churches, not just ours, but the churches all across our country, do you see what's going on out there? It's insane. The latest one I heard last night. Imagine this. Did you know that because of the ratio 
they've determined now that a new class of people who are being treated prejudicially are people who are what they call the right-handed privileged. This was taught by a university professor and built a whole paradigm of evidence that across our country, the new group that is now being treated above everybody else is right-handed people. I mean, everybody knows that. Kathy's left-handed. And she needs some therapy, right, Kath? <laughs> Can you imagine? This is how absurd it's becoming. What does our world need? They need Christ. And it's time we ask the Holy Spirit to take the paddles, rub them together, and give the church a jolt. So we wake up again to the need to reach people for Christ. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Amen. Uh,